Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. I don't know about you, Professor Ross Tucker, but I haven't done as much work as I would expect to have done in the last uh, couple of weeks because uh, there's been a lot to watch on the telly. The World Athletic Championships uh, finished just a day ago as we record this, as did the Tour de France and that, of course, is the World Cycling Champs as far as stage racing is concerned. So a lot to be excited about if you're in the world of cycling and the world of athletics. So today we're going to be focusing on those two events and try and pick out some of the highlights, some of the interesting facts and some of the controversies that have uh, been involved in both events. And both of them have a fair amount of controversy. Some of them have uh, more than others. And uh, there's a fair amount to talk about in terms terms of uh, uh, what we can, how we can wrap these events up. But first of all, as usual, we've got a, a, a caught my eye, mm. which is coming from one of our um, one of our patrons, and that is by the name of Liam Fergus, who talks a bit about somebody's eating plan. Is that right? Yeah. So this is actually linked <laughs> to the World Athletics Champs, and mm. he sent it in. Liam sent this in for the, for the last one. Our last episode was a entire caught my eye podcast and he sent it in for that but i saw the question and i knew we would wrap up the world champs so i decided to put it off because he read an article that carl denner he'd written about ryan krauser who's the u.s shot put champion and now world champion won that title in eugene and what liam says is i read this from carl denner he and what particularly caught my eye was ryan's food intake an insane amount so let me read to you exactly what that is so this is the article that denner he wrote it's on the world athletics website we'll pop the link in the show, not- show notes, and he says, uh, Krause's natural weight is significantly lighter than the 145 kilograms he tips the scales at with his competition. But to maintain his size, strength, and power, he consumes twice the amount of an average man. Breakfast is two burritos with eight eggs, bacon, sour cream, salsa, and cheese. <laughs> Lunch is half a kilo of ground beef with rice. In the mid-afternoon, he'll squeeze in a sandwich, and depending on where he's at in training... He'll eat either one or two hefty dinners with ravioli being one of his favorites. And then there's another snack before bed. So that's probably in excess of 4,000, closer to 5,000 calories a day. Because that's what it takes to stay at 145 kilograms when you are also active. But how active is a shot putter? I mean, they're not like a Tour de France cyclist. That's Tour de France calories, isn't it? It's about the same as you consume in the Tour de France. And that's okay. And they are relatively overeating because they weigh less than half of this. Mm. So, you know, the calories per day is recommended against body weight. Mm. Not It's not absolute. So for a 60 kilogram person to eat 5,000 is more than 145. Mm. So that's yes. worth pointing out. But yeah, it's it's a huge volume. And actually, while I was watching the uh, shot put at the World Champs, someone said to me, you know, how fit is a shot put athlete? Are they healthy? Mm. And the answer is no, not as healthy as a as a fit person, I was going to say a marathon runner, but an elite marathon runner might not be healthy either for mm. for the opposite for other reasons. Right? Mm. But they they are they are unbelievably athletic. I mean, there was a video. This is not answering Liam's question yet. We'll get there. 
there was a video a few years back of Jack O'Gill, who's a New Zealand shot putter, doing bodyweight plyometric type stuff around his house. And it's just unbelievable the sort of stuff they do, like vertical jumps and plyometric type activities. They are unbelievably powerful athletes because you can imagine the whole performance comes down to what happens in about three tenths of a second mm. so from that respect to move that much mass that fast is incredible athleticism i don't know what the typical training volume is of an athlete like this it's not you know they're not lifting light no. they're not lifting long reps uh, high reps low weights i mean it's it's going to be it's going to be explosive stuff, but it's probably hours and hours a day of that with lots of recovery. It's it's basically so. about promoting rotational force, isn't it? I mean, speed for those throwers is all about arm speed, rotational speed, yeah, which is not just about being big and bulky. You've got to have the speed to be able to move around the circle. Mm, rate of force development is the key and yeah. uh, power, effectively. That's what yeah. it is. <laughs> and but power delivered in a fast way. Yeah, yeah exactly. Mm. So... So yeah, it's a, it's an so the diet is interesting because why you some, sometimes people say why do you have to be so big? Well, mass helps obviously because you're you can you can exert force in proportion to your mass. And in fact, I looked up in response to Liam's question whether there'd ever been any research on the body composition of shot put athletes. And there's one study which is quite interesting it was done out of Greece where they tracked shot put athletes during their preseason and they looked at how their body composition changed between pre-season and peak season. And what they found is that they do get heavier and their, um, their, their, their fat mass and their muscle mass and so forth do change as they enter the competition phase. But what's interesting is that that's not related to the performance, which comes to your point, is that it's about the technique and the ability to exert force, not just mass. Mm. Now, I'm not saying that to discredit the importance of being massive <laughs> to performance, because clearly they are, but there's more to it than just that. But the reason the reason they do this, incidentally, and, and Krauser alludes to this in the interview, says, you're force feeding yourself to an extent. I never want to feel hungry. If I feel hungry, it means I'm not in recovery state. So what they're doing is they are trying to build muscle and maintain muscle mass because muscle mass is proportional to muscle strength and power. Make sense? Mm -hmm. And the, the rationale is that you, you have to overconsume the calories to keep the muscle mass high. And that means that you also then tend to accumulate body fat and overall mass. And so that's the reason why all these athletes, it's the same thing for weightlifters. When you watch the Olympic Games and you say, well, why does a weightlifter have to be fat? <laughs> yeah. And the answer is that they don't really want to be fat. They want to be big and they want to have high, as high a muscle mass as possible. Now, what training does is it breaks down proteins. Mm. You enter what's called a catabolic state. <laughs> and when you are breaking down proteins you're breaking down muscle and unless you are in energy balance you don't replenish that muscle protein and so what they are doing is they're trying to say well i'm going to be not just in any energy balance but energy surplus so that i'm absolutely confident that i'm never going to be undercutting my muscle gains as a consequence of having insufficient calorie intake Mm. It doesn't sound like the healthiest diet, though, in, in essence. I mean, if he's just about replacing calories and making sure he – it doesn't sound like particularly protein-heavy or anything. It just kind of mm. looks like he's eating whatever he likes, really. Well, I mean – There's yeah. a lot of wasted wastage and junk food in there. I'd say eight eggs, bacon. There's ground beef at, at lunchtime. I'm not sure what else goes into the dinners other than these but ravioli favorites. it's not favorites. good protein. <laughs> well, I, I, I'd say it probably is. No. Yeah. A lot of animal protein there, a lot of fats. 
Yeah, so there's, there's, there's lots of ways of getting your protein without the fat. I'm surprised uh, that an athlete of that caliber would not look at that. You know, plant proteins are probably better than animal proteins. In terms I don't know of that. that you wouldn't get the calories in if you were eating plant proteins. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's you see because it's both. You need the mm. you need the you need the protein content and the overall calorie intake to be mm. very high, because energy balance is what you're actually trying to defend. Mm. And of course, you need the macronutrient, the proteins, for the muscle support. But actually, what you're doing there is calories matching the energy demand, energy supply to the demand. The other way to do that, of course, is supplements. Interesting. There's no mention of those. Yeah. I don't know what he does with respect to those. A lot of athletes will just have five protein supplements a day because that way they don't have to eat that second dinner or the two burritos at breakfast. <laughs> so, yeah, an interesting observation. I mean, it is. And, and Liam's specific question was, are there other sports where um, you require extreme intake of food? I mean, weightlifting would be one. Closer to competition, weightlifters will eat that. Sumo Love to wrestlers. see the diet of a sumo wrestler. Yes. Yeah, so I looked that up because that's the first thing that popped into my head as well. And that's in the range of about four and a half to 5,000 calories a day mm. consistently. And then it goes up to 7,000 as they're preparing for a competition. Wow. Because it's all about inertia. <laughs> and, and yeah, without compromising speed and power, of course. But it's, you just have, you're just looking for mass. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So there we go. That's those are proper numbers in terms of calories. And as you probably said right at the start there, the fact that it's up there with what a Tour de France rider who's exercising for four, five, six hours a day, that's what they're putting back, but obviously in much smaller bodies than the than a a, a discus thrower. Mm, exactly. So let's move on to the World Championships. it was a weird championships for me because I guess to some extent, and we'll get a little bit into that in a bit in a in a in a while, but um the World Championships in the States, first time they've ever had it in the States, there was a fair amount of pressure because in the States, the competitive environment for eyeballs in sport is very interesting because there's so many different sports. If anybody understands the marketing of sport, Americans do probably better than any nation in the world. So the World Championships was up against you know traditional American sports for eyeballs, and there was going to be a lot of eyeballs looking at these World Championships to look at them and say, were they going to be successful? Were they going to be spectators? We'll, we'll move on to that in a bit. But in summary, two, three world records. Um, Sydney McLaughlin in the 400-meter hurdles, she broke her world record, although arguably celebrated with the least amount of gusto I've ever seen. Um, <laughs> de Plantis in the pole vote, breaking his own world record, 621, I think it was, in the pole vote. And Credible. celebrated with great gusto. And celebrated by doing front flips. And mm-hmm. yeah, he celebrated like you should. Like you expect someone to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then Toby my son's world record in the in the semifinals of the 100 meter hurdles, which is the one that became the talking point really of the championships because it wasn't just she snuck under the world record, she broke it. And then again in the final, broke it again, but the wind assisted. Unfortunately, the wind was too much and didn't become a world, world record. But Russ, your summary of that based on what we saw um, in terms of, there was the other highlights, the 200 meters were fantastic. The rise of uh, some of the great sprinters also coming through as well. Mm. Yeah, I'd have given it like a C minus. Does this mean? Overall. Yeah, may, and then may, maybe, sorry, a C, and then maybe last night pushed it to a B minus because there were two world records. That women's 800 was probably one of the better races mm. of the whole championships. Uh, and it finished it finished quite well. But but overall, and I mean, it's a little unfair because the time zone it really doesn't help us because you're waking up in the morning and trying to cram it in 
while you're trying to juggle work and I was sort of watching it on record trying to skip between events and find the things that I was interested in so I didn't really immerse myself in these world championships like I would have done had it been say in London or Rome or even Tokyo where it's at least favorable Mm. time zone but I I thought overall it was just a underwhelming world championships I've seen on social media and then I think gee that I missed something maybe I did but I, I just found it difficult to get um, really into the, these these championships. I, I don't know. The stadium looked half empty half the time. The the broadcast came across as quite B grade to me. It looked like a looked like a mediocre presentation. Commentary <laughs> was average. <laughs> I'll funny. tell you how I really feel later. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny you say that because. To some extent, I disagree with you on that. I thought the television coverage was slightly better than I've seen of all championships before. I thought they had better television and camera angles than they've seen before. We had cameras on on sliders going across both sides of the track. We had overhead shots that I've never seen before in track and field. I felt there were more camera angles on the field events than I've ever seen before. I know that you posted about this in social media when they had those graphs that looked at the mm. speed of the athletes, particularly in the sprint events. I found that quite fascinating because you could, you know, in those graphs, you could see when and where athletes had won the event, whether they were fastest in the first 50, second 50 or third 50, etc. I know that they will we'll talk a little bit about your views on that. But there was a, a vibe that I felt was better and more enthusiastic and probably typically American in many ways, because Americans do make a lot of noise when it comes to sport. And even though we didn't have a particularly always full stadium, particularly at the start, it got full towards the second half of the week. And I felt that there was quite a lot of you know, proper crowd involvement in that event. So hmm. I, I guess for me, it was, a, it was a better world championships than I can remember, certainly better than Doha. I mean, there was nobody watching. That's fair. But, you know, I still think that the sport of track and field is in a place where it, it needs to figure out where it's going to go going forward. Mm, yeah, fair. And I mean, I'm willing to concede that the my perceptions of these world championships might say more about my present state of mind around the sport than the actual sport. <laughs> <laughs> I will say, though, that because I was watching it on record, I was waking up and it's a four-hour broadcast. So I think, yeah. okay, I'm just going to skip forward here. And I have this little button that skips three or four minutes at a time, right? So I'm skipping, 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 nothing. Skipping, 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 mm. nothing. Skipping um, more shots of the warm-up track, more shots of the mountains in the background. Skipping mm. forward, a little bit of highlight. Let's watch the 200 <laughs> from two days before. And eventually, after about 25 minutes, must have been skipped through before I find athletes being introduced. Another five minutes before the race happens. I can't see how a sport can take, what was it, eight days? Yeah. Four, 32 hours to deliver what athletics delivers. Yeah. It's just, not, for me, not viable. Now that that's finished, we'll go to Diamond League races, and in two hours, we'll see almost as much action as we would have seen in 32 hours at these World Championships. But they need 16 times the length. Mm. It just doesn't – something's not working there. Yeah, I think that that I agree with you. The delays between the events is insufferable at times, Mm. and we're lucky in South Africa to some extent is that we were able to watch it on record, which is what I did most of the time. And I did, you're right, I skipped through much of it. And uh, luckily in South Africa on our local channel, they actually picked out some of the highlights and just showed us the individual races um, over a continued highlights package, and I enjoyed watching that. But Mm. I don't know whether it's a challenge that you can overcome because you still have to have heats, you still have to have semifinals. Um, and then you have to have a final. Um, and how do you change that? You can't really. So it's it's because track and field in theory should offer you ways to fill dead time because, you know, when a 
let's say it's a 1500. It's three and a mm. half minutes of action, plus the introductions and the post-race celebrations. Cool. So let's say that event is eight minutes long. Then it's going to be 20 minutes till the next one. There's 12 minutes there, during which time the television coverage can definitely fill it with field event coverage. If you have a good editing and production team, good directorship, you could probably get away with quite a lot there. Right? Mm. But there is a lot of... So my, my main sport now is, is rugby, and World Rugby is constantly worried about the dead time in an 80-minute match, which works out to be about 40 minutes. So sure. when you watch an 80-minute rugby match, there's 40 minutes of... Wait, not wasted time, but it's dead time. But the thing is, nobody really notices because that dead time is used to show replays, to set up tactical expectations about what's about to happen, mm. to go down to the guy on the sideline. He's going to talk about a substitution that's about to be made. And so it's still, there's something still happening, right? Yeah. Athletics doesn't seem to me to have quite figured out how to tell the story in the blank, in the low, in the dead spots, yeah. you know? And that's maybe the difference is, I don't want to just have a camera pan across eight athletes as they wave hello, as their name is announced. That there must be there must be a way to tell some stories, and to actually get people emotionally invested in the people more than they currently do. I, I don't know what the answer is, but but it's too it's too flat for too long. Yeah, no. I, I mean, there were some moments when I felt that they they were. You know, particularly when you look at the American athletes, and I enjoyed watching the 200s, for instance. Mm. I enjoyed the rise of people like Noah Lyles winning the 200. You know, he's a great athlete. He's got a bit of charisma. He ran a fantastic time, and that's you know, he's not he's no Usain Bolt, but he's not far off in terms of getting an American. Um, he's, he's trying hard he's, to be. He's trying hard to be <laughs> absolutely, um, and he's entertaining. Yes, exactly, and mm. uh, and same with the Mont de Plantis. The, and the and pole so water. I was in I was in Oregon when the U.S. trials were held, mm. and he beat the youngster Knighton. Yes, he was ended fantastic. Up third at these world championships, but eighteen years old. So okay, youngest, youngest medalist yeah. ever. Yeah. And Noel's beat Knighton in that race, and they interview all three athletes on the finish line. So they're still sort of between gasps for breath. They're now giving an interview. And Knighton stormed off the interview because Lyles, let me, I don't remember exactly what he said, but he said something that offended Knighton and Knighton walked off the screen, off the shot. Good TV. And it was, it was like, that was the reason the 200 was hyped in Eugene. You see, a lot of the, a lot of the value is created off the track. Yeah. And uh, so that, that event was interesting to me because I wanted to see, could Knighton, and in the end, I mean, yeah. no one came close to Lyles, but yeah. 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 No, so I think it, as as we just sort of summarise my views, and thank goodness for people like Noah Lyles, and thank goodness not everybody's the same as um, Sydney McLaughlin <laughs> with her very well, muted response I mean, to a world because, record. Because you can't be what you can't be <laughs> what you're not. No, you can't. I agree. And if, and if Sydney McLaughlin tried to go around um, perform performatively, probably come across really forced and and uh, awkward, right? Yeah, true. But but you know, I remember when Wade for Nickak won the world title in 2015 and he was the dominant 400 meter runner and then of course as listeners may know he breaks the world record in 2016 and the i remember Olympics, thinking yeah. like because they, they they very clearly tried to set for nick up as the heir to the usain bolt throne as like the figurehead of the sport mm. marketing figurehead mm. because they had the hundred just before the four bolt waited around they sort of showed them it was almost like a symbolic handover remember that there was an interaction between Wade for Nikuk and yeah, Usain Bolt. Yeah, That's right. and it didn't. And they trained together. I mean, call me naive, but it didn't seem it didn't seem completely um, spontaneous. <laughs> <laughs>
But Wade Finnick just also did not have the bolt charisma to pull yeah. that off. And yeah. in the end, okay, we were denied Wade Finnick's career by that knee injury to mm. link playing rugby. And he's now, at least he's making a final. Yeah, fifth place in the final. Yeah, good to great. see at least yeah, that. Absolutely. But Sydney McLaughlin gives me the same impression. I mean, she is just, a, I mean, you know, that woman's 400 world record, not the hurdles, the flats, mm-hmm. is 47.6 by Marita Koch, one of the oldest and certainly one of the dodgiest records. She gives you the impression that if she wanted to go flat, she could challenge that. Yeah. Um, she ran a great leg in the 4x4 four four as that well. That was a sub-48 in the 4x4. Four four. Yeah. That's that's the latest confirmation. Right. And I have heard that after she's finished on the hurdles, she wants to go. And she's only 22, so, <laughs> so she's, got, she's got years still to try. So that, that, in theory, could be an athlete who just is historically transcendent. Yeah. But, yeah, is not going to be the Usain Bolt mm-hmm. of entertainment value for the sport. Mm-hmm. But does that does that matter? Maybe not. Yeah. Again, it's unfair to ask people to be what they're not. I think to some extent athletics and track and field is almost the domain of, of, the, of the fan, of the fanatic. Mm. Um, it's not necessarily ever going to be as commercial as potentially the NFL or, you know, soccer globally or anything like that, purely because it is what it is. You know, mm. it, can it change and become like an NFL football match? No, it's never going to be like that unless there's some yeah. radical shifting in it. But I'd like to see more technology. Like I'd love to see some of the technology we see in swimming where you can watch a swimming event and you can see a marker on the pool to where the world record is. And mm. I would and like to see that. that on the track. They had that, yeah. so credit to them. I mean, when they were Did showing they? the, yeah, so for they instance, have a marker in, on the field. Even even that. for the even for the heats, when you know you get the fastest time qualifiers, mm-hmm. and then the second heat would come along, they'd have a line in the last two hundred meters showing you where the current fastest qualifier was, yes. so you could see whether this race was going to. In the field events, they would put those little gold, silver, and bronze That's true. lines. Yes, and that did so they, help. So, so actually, yeah, they are they are doing little things. They've got their little speed. Um, at some points in the men's 5,000, for instance, they mm. flashed up the current speeds of the top three, you know, mm. 23.2K yes. an hour and so on. It felt a bit silly that though because they were all going at the same speed. That's, off the, and that's the point. In the 4x400. Four, the four They're running they, together. In the 4x400, they were showing the speeds of the Jamaican and the American and the Jamaican was consistently faster than the American. But you could see on television that the Jamaican was falling behind yeah, the American. And yeah. then you go, well, actually, I know what you're trying to do here, mm. but you would have been better off not doing it at all. And that's the... <laughs> well, what was the beef with the graph? I mean, you have posted so the beef on with social the graph media. Is like you had, you had eight, eight athletes now in the men's 100 final, let's say, for mm. argument's sake. And the graph is meant to show you their speed in kilometers per hour as the race evolves. So when they're going faster, the graph is... Up and then yeah. Going so start. literally, it's a line graph of speed on the y-axis against distance on the x-axis, and then right. it marks off what their top speed was, and in theory when they reached it. And it just didn't gel with what I thought I knew about sprints. <laughs> I was like, "Am I going crazy here?" And then I listened to our podcast with Stuart McMillan, which we did mm. ahead of the Tokyo Olympics. He's a American sprint specialist in terms of coaching. Yeah, Canadian, I think. Canadian, sorry. And uh, sorry. And he was saying to us, you know, and we know this to be true, that the top speed is reached between 50 and 70 meters, and then you hold on to your speed as much as you can. These graphs were showing top speeds in 30 meters, so that looked dodgy to me to begin with. And then you had these wild oscillations in a 100-meter race. I mean, some athletes were slowing down, then speeding up, then slowing down, then speeding up. It looked like a middle-distance event. Mm -hmm. And we know that doesn't happen in the 100. So there's something about the accuracy of the measurement that's gone wrong there. And also, they didn't clarify what we were looking at. So... 
And then there was a shading on the graph where green was slow and red was when you were running your fastest. So yes. I could see what they were trying to do. It was cool. But it looked to me like it had been made by someone who didn't have an intuitive grasp of what the sport actually looked like. Mm. It was it kind of like mechanical. You know, it's like paint by numbers as opposed to artistic. Mm. Yes. <laughs> and So there's uh, some nuance lost so in it, So it fell short a little bit. Mm. But, mm. I, okay, like, I mean, even now as we're conversing about this, I can... I can see efforts being made, and that's cool. Yes. So maybe I was a bit harsh. Maybe I'll give it a B plus. Because what I would say, what I looked at that when I looked at those, you could see first of all with the highest speed of the person. That one was always fairly obvious. And what was also interesting is that in almost all the events from the four hundred, the two hundred, and the hundred, is how much they slowed down mm. in the last quarter of the race. I didn't realize they slowed down to that extent. Yeah. And one of the interesting one was looking at Wade Finnegan in the four hundred, and he was yeah. right there at the start of the of the final straight. He was right there. Even to 50 to go. He was yeah, there. right and there. Then, and he dropped off massively in the last 50, which is obviously very encouraging for him, given what he's come back from. Mm. But it showed you that the difference was he was always there until the last 50. And in that graph, it showed quite clearly that his line went from there to literally on the floor. Yeah, so the color the shading 50. would have changed from yes. orange to green. And so then, okay, it's, it's telling me the story. So like, and, and again, you can see what it's trying to show. Mm. But I couldn't tell you how much he slowed down. All I could tell you is that the shape of it was that he slowed down. And that's where... I think they could do slightly more with that, you know. So, for instance, if I was if I was asked to to improve it for Budapest next year, pick two athletes, pick because you and everyone knows who the two are that you'd pick. You'd pick the gold and the silver, um, and you'd compare them. Or maybe in this instance, you compare Wade for Nickak to Michael Norman mm. and show like with sixty meters to go they were level, and then overlay the one on top of the other, and show me how Norman pulled clear. You know that that would be interesting too. There's other. And I anyway, think you could actually see that. They've got tools. In all fairness, they've got <laughs> tools to do it with. But I anyway, I just don't think that it. Yeah, I just don't think they achieved. That's why I'd say I give them a B, mm. because I could see the effort, but the execution wasn't quite there. Well, maybe the first iteration of that was a good idea. And yeah. I think it gave you more yeah. information than you would normally get. And I'd love to see that worked on to get a more accurate reflection of how that works because I think it does tell a great story. Even for the non-connoisseur of track and field, it's still interesting to look at that. And I think understanding the speed of an athlete relative to either what we can run and also relative to a world or a championship record is also very interesting. Mm. That makes the sport interesting to people who might not normally consume it, which is what you're after. I'll tell you what other technology could be very easily incorporated into that kind of thing is stuff like ground contact time and stride length. If the athlete would allow you to equip their shoe with something, slight mass on the shoe, you'd be able to actually show. Because Wade Fennincak ran the same patterned race as, as Warholm in the 400 hurdles, you know, and they both came into it not knowing if they were really ready for these championships. And they both did 320 meters of a 400 really well. Yeah. And then the wheels fell off in the 80. And, and it would be quite interesting from a scientific perspective to show just what happens because your ground contact time gets way longer. Mm. You can't get off the ground once you're fatigued. And your stride length drops to become quite a lot shorter as you fatigue. Mm. And so that would be an interesting supplement to the speed analysis is actually you know wade slowed down because his contact times went eight percent longer and his stride length was six percent shorter yeah yeah for example i'm yeah. guessing but that would be a good study wouldn't it mm, no, to be hard think, and that's yeah. the sort of stuff they already do i suppose physiologically that makes a lot of sense because as you tighten up you can't stride as much and you can't bound as much as you would if you yeah, were you're, feeling you're, stronger your muscle tendon junction loses efficiency you don't mm. store as much energy in that tendon you can't exert force against the ground, and as a consequence, you need longer to get off the ground, and you travel less distance 
when you're in the air after leaving it. So. What, as a total aside, what what happens to wait for Newkirk's legs in that last 50 that sort of makes him do that? So it's, What's the physiology it's, there? So that's metabolite <laughs> accumulation and depletion. So that's hydrogen ions, uh, phosphate, because obviously when you're sprinting like at that intensity, you a significant proportion of your energy is coming from your creatine phosphate and your glycolytic stores in the absence of oxygen. Mm-hmm. And when we use energy from those you're running sources, so hard, you're not using oxygen. You're almost yeah. The rate at which you need to get fuel ATP to your muscles is so high that you can't waste time with oxygen pathways. You, mm. you pretty much use the glycolytic ones. The consequence is that you accumulate lactate and hydrogen ions and phosphates in the muscle. Calcium from in the muscle is a storage depot of calcium, which releases that calcium. It doesn't get back in, so you get calcium accumulation. Um, acidosis in the muscle and then basically it just loses its contractile ability plus mm. the brain says listen thanks very much but you've <laughs> done we've done what we can and we're actually shutting you down at this point so the signal to the muscle drops and the same signal to the muscle doesn't produce the force that it oh, did yeah. at the start. Oh, that's yeah. a good, great little bit of insight there yeah. so talking i mean we talked about the physiology of athletes and one of the controversies if you can call it that comes from the performance of Tabi Amasan in the women's 100 meter hurdles where she wore a pair of shoes that is normally worn by athletes in the 5 and the 10k and she wore these shoes because she was suffer- suffered from plantar fasciitis which is essentially the muscle underneath the foot mm, that fascia, suffers, yeah. the fascia underneath mm. the foot which sometimes gets inflamed and anybody who does road running will know what that feels like and she asked Adidas her sponsor to give her some shoes that would allow her to be able to train and she's been running with these more uh, bigger shoes for a while. And when you look at photographs of her, you can see that the shoes are very different from the track spikes of the people running next to her. And Sean Ingle, our favorite journalist from The Guardian, wrote a lovely piece about the fact that it has opened the debate now about these particular shoes, which almost by chance maybe gave her a performance advantage, even though they weren't necessarily designed for that function. Mm, Fascinating, I mean, it's it? a distant spike. And so I joked spike, yeah. um, on Twitter earlier that they've just discovered a new market for distance shoes. Yes. Because all sprinters, <laughs> you wait, when's the next Diamond League race? Probably next week. Yeah, yeah. always very soon after the Sprint, Sprinters will be, at least the hurdlers will be in those shoes. So it's really interesting. It I should mean, be I, in Zurich, actually. In Velt classes, normally soon, after World Champs. Yeah. Monaco, because yeah. they say the calendar changed because Commonwealth uh, Games. True, true. So I think they're in Monaco before, but there's a Commonwealth Games that very few people care about coming up soon. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Anyway, diversion. Let's think, uh, what was your question? You asked about the... Yes, so that performance was amazing because it was in the semi-final. Yes. And when that happened, I was like, did the the timer malfunction? Because A, you're not expecting it in a semi-final. And B, it was just so... I mean, who thought that the 100 world record was going to go? And uh, and by quite a lot, actually. 0.08 of a second yeah. beating Kendra Harrison's time. Yeah. So 12.12 was her time which that she brought, that she, as opposed to 12.20. Which itself, I mean, that Harrison performance had taken 100th off the previous world record, and that world record was as old as the sport. I mean, mm. that was <laughs> Donkover from the 80s. So it had been nudged down by 100th and then bang. And then, uh, I mean, in the final, she got out the blocks really slowly and still ran 12.06, admittedly, with a follow wind. But I wouldn't be surprised to see an 11-something. 
imminently. Well, that's what we've been talking about, haven't they? Imminently. How possible that is, yeah. Uh, I think she could run 11 next time she races, to be honest, if she gets a good start and has that form. So, But so, do you think, I mean, based on what we know now and the fact that these shoes... Well, this is the problem. How much of an effect did these shoes, Exa- by chance... Exactly. So here we are again talking about the freaking <laughs> shoes and like how they confound our ability to analyze the performance. I mean, have we not had this? You know what I mean? It's just, it's just. This is what. This is the problem. Mm-hmm. And when, the, when the sport, when the sport allowed in this instance twenty millimeters, right, was the thickness that they're allowing that cell to be. It used to be four to five sprint spikes. It's sixteen, a centimeter and a half. It's mm, a lot. You're giving someone scaffolding of a centimeter and a half to put in curved plate, foam cushion, energy return, the the shape of it, which we've read up rocks the athlete forward and that's certainly the sensation i've had wearing these shoes is you you feel like you're being propelled forward as if you're on a downhill i mean you might as well tilt the track one percent downhill and let them race that's what this is doing and so i don't know how to interpret these performances but what's interesting about this and the shoe is called the adazira vanti which they describe as a shoe that provides a snappy propulsive ride with high traction and reduced fatigue so you can finish five and ten kilometer races with a kick what's fascinating about this is that as you've said it's not designed for the particular event mm. so adidas didn't go in with the idea of making this shoe available to break a world record in the in the in an event like the 100 meter hurdles but yet not by ch- well, I suppose by chance, they've got it, and maybe we will now see all track spikes coming out with more propulsive foam. In the, I, mean, I think that's what's going to my my view is that this is going to now set a trend in track spikes, not only yeah. from not only from this, but potentially in the 100, 100, 200 meters, four hundred meters, all those events. I agree, and so it might be that athletes try it; they all will try it. Yeah, <laughs> it might be that some of them say, actually, you know what, I feel too bouncy. I feel out of control maybe. I feel like I'm overstriding because it, it, it very well could change their mechanics in a way that's either uncomfortable to them or inefficient. And so some might discard it, but a lot of them will also stick with it. So I think it will change sprint spikes. Mm. Of course, we're saying all this under the assumption that it made the difference. Maybe it didn't. Maybe she'd have run even faster in a normal sprint spike. No one knows because it's not tested, right? At least with the road shoe in the first iteration of that four percent there was a lab study and there were a couple of subsequent independent studies that confirmed it these sprint spikes we don't know i mean stuart mcmillan when we interviewed him head of tokyo he estimated one percent another article that i read during these world championships interviewed a sprint coach and they said between 0.7 and one percent so that's you know one percent in a 400 is half a second 1% 1% in a 100-meter race is a tenth of a second. Mm. So if that is the case, that that could be the entirety of the improvement we've just seen. Mm. could be part of it. I don't, we don't know. Mm. And I mean, and the other thing is the hurdles events stand to benefit more than the flat races because in the 400 hurdles, one of the main challenges for those athletes is as they fatigue, and we've just alluded to this, is as you fatigue, your stride length gets shorter. And the problem is that if your stride length gets shorter by just the right amount, you no longer reach the next hurdle on the optimal stride pattern. Mm-hmm. So you either have to learn to hurdle off both legs or you have to overstride or cut your stride in order to stay on the same length. Because the moment you have an odd number of steps, you're changing left to right over each hurdle. Yeah? Right. So a shoe that comes along and allows you to run with a higher stride length without the same physical investment onto the ground. In other words, you're not doing the same work 
mm. to get that length is going to massively benefit a hurdle athlete. Yeah. And so I don't think it's a coincidence that the two world records from Tokyo and now that have gone down the most were the 400 hurdles. I think they are getting the best benefit from the shoes and potentially the 100 hurdles as well. There was a, a tweet that um, I saw recently. In fact, you sent me the link to it, uh, talking about this article written by Carl Dennehy, a, a, a freelance journalist who talks about the fact that a lot of the 400-meter hurdles um, particularly talking about the Adidas shoe in the 400-meter hurdles, so they could run with one less step between each barrier due mm. to increased stride length. Right. So it's not only one or two athletes, and with Sydney McLaughlin, for instance, she was running in the New Balance, the new New Balance track mm. shoe as well, um, which is supposed to have the same benefit as well. So right. we're continuing to see these micro-developments in track and field and are you know, we think we're kind of reached a limit, but it seems like we're just at the start of this technological revolution in shoes to some extent. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And I mean, again, 400 hurdles now, the men are running 46 low and the women are running under 51. Sydney McLean, mm. it's nuts. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, that's faster than most countries' national 400 meter records. Yeah. It's as if the hurdles aren't there, which is another thing, actually. I think the women's hurdles are too low are relative too low. to their height. <laughs> Just going to say that. Like I, it looks a little bit too easy to get over the hurdles. I meant, to, I meant to actually look that up um, because we know that you, can, you could work it out. Like what proportion of the typical adult male or female's height is that hurdle? Mm. You know, and I guarantee you the men's hurdle is disproportionately higher than the women's. Yes. Or leg length. Maybe you've got to do it by leg length, not height. But anyway, they're not going to change that now, I don't think. No, not but because point, of us. The, no. <laughs> point is, there's 10 female hurdles and 10 male 400 hurdles who could run 250 meters at world record pace. But then they fatigue. And what the shoe is doing is it's allowing them to run the pace with the right stride length between the hurdles without the fatigue that they can then finish the next 150. And that's the difference, I think, that we've seen in the last two years, two, yeah. three years. I'm excited to see what happens. Uh, I don't think we'll see much change in terms of the Commonwealth Games, um, but so we'll certainly get on to uh, potentially events for the following uh, big events in track and field to see where they uh, turn up in terms of development of the shoe. So watch the space and let us know what your thoughts are around the uh, development of shoe technology. Right, so moving on to a slightly different topic when it comes to these world championships was the case of Devon Allen, who was famous for probably being DQ'd and probably one of the biggest stories of the world championships. And just to give you some background, Devon Allen, a 110-meter hurdle um, racer who was disqualified in the 110-meter hurdle heats for uh, a reaction time that was faster than the allowed reaction time of not well, one hundredth of a second essentially. Uh, one tenth of a second. One tenth of a second there. Yeah. Sorry, one tenth of a second. Yeah. So, what was interesting about that is that there has been studies done, Rostaka, that have proved that he might have been disqualified uh, erroneously. Well, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's the claim, been. and I mean, this was the, this was the big controversy of the opening weekend, mm. in part because it was going to be an American sweep of the podium. They hoped for, and it might well have been. Alan came in as the world number one performer this year, mm -hmm. and he'd also signed recently to play American football with the Philadelphia Eagles. And so I think there was a lot of excitement about a crossover athlete. And if he'd won a medal here and then gone to the NFL, it does a lot for the profile of the sport. And you know, so there was a lot going on before the race that made his disqualification all the more frustrating. Yeah, he was the third athlete that night to false start. I remember watching the. Two of the three women's hundred semis had the same thing happen. His was the closest mm -hmm. because his reaction time was ninety nine point yeah, so nine nine yeah, yeah ninety nine milliseconds as opposed to the one hundred. 
So it's literally by a thousandth of a second false started. Yeah. And there's no recourse. And so which, then, which sounds, I mean, if you think about it, it sounds all pretty fair because that's the standard that's you been used. You set a line and you defend a line. Yeah, I mean, exactly. it's, it's whether it's arbitrary or not almost doesn't matter. And I saw a lot of people commenting on social media, oh, it's an arbitrary line. Well, so what? It doesn't matter that it's arbitrary. The point is it's a line. It's a line, yeah. You know, like there's lots that's of things in life. That's what's used for the <laughs> yes. last, yeah. Yeah, exactly. X amount of years. Where and just to give some background here, yeah, this is actually measured by pressure plates yeah. on the starting block. So it's not done by the human eye largely. Mm. It's done by these pressure plates, which as soon as they feel that it, that that athlete has moved um, before the gun's gone off, then it lets the starter know that there's an illegal, supposedly an illegal start. Right. So someone has worked out, well, in fact, they didn't, but they basically decided that if you react faster than 100 milliseconds, it's because you've anticipated the gun yeah. and you've applied pressure to the block before you could have heard the sound. And they said, no, 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 you need to react to the sound. And so that's what it's, it's called reaction time, not anticipation time. Yeah. And so that's where the line was drawn. So the two arguments are, number one is that some people might be able to react faster than that. And in fact, that's where it gets quite like amusing, frustratingly amusing, is that back in 2009, a paper was published in the World Athletics at the time IAAF's journal. So this is looking, uh, 20, uh, 13 years ago. 13 years ago. <laughs> And it was published in a, in a journal, which I think still exists, called NSA, New Studies in Athletics. Great. I, I remember reading this often because they did such cool studies. This one was called IAAF Sprint Start Research Project. Is the 100 millisecond limit still valid? The main author was a guy called Pavo Komi. He's a very famous Finnish sports scientist. Yes. And I'm going to read you one sentence from the abstract. We'll put the whole thing in the show notes as well. Uh, the authors found great variation in the individual reaction times and confirmed previous reports of simple auditory actions as fast as 80 milliseconds they recommend that the 100 millisecond limit be lowered to 80 or 85 and that the IAAF urgently examines possibilities for detecting false starts kinematically blah 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 so in other words they've had advice that it should be faster than the 100 milliseconds and they haven't implemented it 13 years later <laughs> I was going to say that's and a so, big that's a more of a delay than the reaction right. times now all three of the starts <laughs> that night were between 0.85 and sorry, we're between 0 0.085 and 0 0.1. Mm. So in actual fact, all three of those athletes could say, here's a paper that shows that in actual fact, we just reacted really, really fast. <laughs> yeah. Um, what subsequently emerged in amongst all the gnashing of teeth about Devin Allen's false start is that the there's something really funny going on with the timing in Eugene. Mm. And so for example, one coach, a sprint coach called PJ Vazal posted, Here's the number of reaction times under 0.115. So that's 115 milliseconds. So this would still be legal, right? Yep. At World Championship men's 100 and 110 hurdles in the past decade. 2011, zero. 2013, zero. 2015, zero. 2017, two. 2019, three. 2022, 25. Yeah. So, so yeah. people start saying, and then and then there was a whole bunch, and the guys at Let's Run combined combined uh, compiled them. Sorry, where readers sent them different analyses methods, and they basically worked this out. Then they then they were onto it in the two hundred, and they showed that the average reaction time in the men's two hundred was about uh, twenty milliseconds faster than it had been in twenty nineteen, and that there were significantly more fast reaction times now than then. Yeah. So now you got all this stuff going around saying that. 
in actual fact, something's gone wrong with the timing system. Suddenly, a whole bunch of athletes in Eugene, Oregon, are now reacting well, faster than ever before. That's what, and that's so the World yeah. Athletics and defended the stats their show equipment that quite clearly. Yeah, so the world record, the World Athletics have defended their equipment, which basically means that's what they believe has happened. Yes, they believe that twenty-five athletes have now figured out how to react within one hundred and fifteen milliseconds, whereas five years ago it was none. Yeah. <laughs> So, understandably, there's not much confidence in the timing systems going on. Because they know, claim it's been calibrated by Swedish engineers yeah. and all no, sorts I don't of know things. Enough, yeah. I'm not, I don't mm. know about these electronic things. and mm. This is not my thing. But obviously, the way it has to work is that there's got to be a signal from the gun, which is actually an electronic gun, mm. into a computer. And then the computer has to also receive a signal from the blocks and from the gun. Mm. And so, if you mess up the communication between the gun and the blocks and the central computer that's going to combine these things, then you could, in theory, start receiving one signal slightly earlier than you should relative to another, and this this could happen. Mm. Or the pressure sensors, this is probably more plausible, is that the pressure sensors on the pads are too sensitive, and they pick up movement or pressure earlier than they would have done before. And we're talking by five to 15 hundredths of a second here, right? I mean, Alan was a thousandth of a second faster. Yeah, <laughs> so, that could be a blip of technology. So, so no mm. one, yeah, I don't know. I mean, when this happens, now, and that's why when I spoke earlier about the 100-meter hurdle record, when she first crossed the line and it comes up world record, I thought, is this a timing mistake? Yeah. Because it's kind of lost confidence. Later on, in fact, last night, uh, when the women's 800 was being run, the, everyone could see that Athing Mo held off Hodgkinson. Did you see the race? Yeah, like, yeah. It was close. But it didn't look like a photo finish. Mm. And then when the results come up, it shows Hodgkinson first and Mo second mm. by a hundredth of a second. And then very quickly disappears because mm. someone's realized that's a mistake. So I don't know what was going on with the timing in Eugene, but I'm not, I'm not as confident as one should be when that's literally the point of the sport. I mean, is there any solution? I often think that it's a bit like watching the third umpire in cricket to some extent. It's that sport has variabilities that are to some extent part of the sport. And I often think that when it comes to starting of sprinting events, why not have a slow motion camera that just visually shows you whether somebody got a head start over the person next to him? Um, and relying on this sort of technology is almost overkill or maybe well, too pedantic. I what do you look, which, which part of the sprinter's body tells you that he's false started? Is it the knee angle? <laughs> is it the ankle? Should I look at the head? Do I look at the shoulder? Yeah. I suppose that's part of it, you know, and that's why in this paper by Comey they start talking about kinematics, and if you start looking into it, every every few years they do an analysis of the start, and they measure all these things, you know, what's the angle, when do they change, and so on. So, because it becomes actually quite t- tricky yeah. to tell apart. You know, remember this is an event that's being decided often by two hundredths of a second. Yeah. So if you mess it up by three hundredths of a second at the start, you change the result. Yeah. Um, so that's the first problem. The, I, th- I actually think the start technology is quite elegant. I mean, it's a really cool system. There's a signal, and if you react to the signal faster than a certain time, and we can measure that really well, then you fall started. The mm. problem is if your equipment fails or doesn't work properly for whatever reason, now the whole thing is reliant on mm. faulty parts. <laughs> yeah. Big problems. And in this case, there is well, <laughs> statistically confirmation that there was a problem. There may, have been. There may have been a problem. I mean, I, I don't know. Like, I mean... How do you go from three to 25 mm. in mm. the same set of events within a few years? Maybe athletes are a bit more nervous in Oregon. 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> Pressure. It's, it's, I don't know. You know, people are trying to find it out. And World Athletics said we have confidence in our system. Well, yeah. I can't. I don't know how you have that. To me, to me, though, in terms of a solution, because I understand. Having said that, having an arbitrary line is fine. Like you have to have it. But I also understand the problem for the sport is like that night, that became the story. And as you said in your introduction, these world championships in the US are meant to be the big show for the sport. So you want your headlines and your stories to be positive. Yeah. The next Monday morning, the he- the, the the non-mainstream athletic sorry, the non-athletic mainstream media mm. was covering the World Athletics as Philadelphia Eagles recruit Devin Allen disqualified from 100 hurdle final. Yeah. So instead of being a positive story about Instead the sport, of Shelly Ann Fraser winning five world titles. There's that also. Yeah. That didn't even, that's probably the last paragraph, yeah. by the way. That was the highlight, actually. Yes, exactly. So, so you can understand, like, from a marketing perspective, and we want the sport to grow, that you wouldn't want this kind of controversy. Mm-hmm. So my solution to it would be the following is you keep the point one because that's, that's what you've always had. And anything slower than point one is clearly not a false start. There's no disputing that if you go at 0.111 or right. 0.169, whatever it is, you've reacted. Happy days, finish your race. On the other end, there's a point at which a false start becomes what I'd call like egregiously obvious. In other words, if I showed 100 people that clip, every single one of them would say, lane four, done, gone. Right. Now, I don't know what that point is, but let's say it's 0.08, 80 milliseconds, okay? Anything faster than that is red automatic disqualification because it's so obvious that no one in their right mind would dare argue it like do it and then go to the go to the start and complain and protest your innocence but the moment that replay comes up on the big screen everyone's going to be get out of here and let the mm. guys race you made a mistake you're gone yeah you can see it, yeah. it's so obvious right? Yeah, right and then in between those two points is what you could call like the gray zone or the orange zone where it's a technological false start but not obvious to the human eye and those are the contentious ones and it's it's the argument then i think would be to say if it's a contentious one then give the guy the second chance in that race mm. now let's put that guy under warning and if he does two contentious he's gone but one doesn't get you disqualified because it's too harsh makes sense to me you can't ask a guy in a 100 meter race or a 110 hurdles where the whole point is to be as fast as possible to be slower <laughs> Mm. <laughs> let him be as fast as possible mm. and if he makes a stupid mistake by anticipating and it's so obvious that 40,000 people see it then, yeah. it's, then it's easy to disqualify him but if I mean I, I watched those three clips the hurdles and the 100 meter semis and I couldn't see those false starts in real time mm. I don't think they deserve to be disqualified for mm. that so I would have that I'd have a clear green a clear red and then an orange zone in the middle where you give the guy at least one chance at it. Yeah. Uh, I think that makes a lot of sense, to be honest with you. I think it's one of those things that uh, – it's just amazing that World Athletics haven't adopted some of the principles of a study that they did themselves. And maybe yes. with this we might see a change in the next year, when, with, according to that research that was done a long time ago. Maybe. Or they'll update the research. 
Yeah, um, yeah especially that's, that's the other way to go. Yeah. Talking about contentious issues, Seb Coe, the leader of, uh, well, the leader, <laughs> the, the pre- president of World Athletics, um, his quote, and this is a little bit to do with uh, the Casta Semeni issue. And obviously, those of you that have been following the Casta Semeni issue, she is unfortunately not able to do her favorite 800 meter event because of the World Athletics rules around testosterone levels. And uh, she competed in the 5,000 at the World Athletics Championships, didn't make it through the heats and didn't uh, do particularly well. And Sepko coming out saying, um, when asked about the rules around testosterone, he says, we've always been guided by the science and the science is pretty clear. We know that testosterone is the key determinant of performance. And then he says- um, Which I enjoyed. This, this is a great quote. Which, which I want to ask a little bit. This is, this is the quote probably of the championships from the head of World Athletics. I'm really over having any more of these discussions with second rate sociologists who sit there trying to tell me or the science community that there may be some issue. There isn't. Testosterone is the key determinant in performance. I mean, we largely I, I, agree with that. I cheered when I read that. Someone <laughs> sent me a quote and said, you'll enjoy this. And let's be clear. We're not I massive fans of Seb Coe, but that wasn't. I haven't often seen eye to eye with Coe, but when I read that, I was like, bravo, sir. I, mm. I fully feel you on that one because I too am tired of second rate sociologists and other non-physiologists telling me about physiology. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he talks specifically about the fact that it's his responsibility as a head of all athletics to protect the integrity of women's sport, which is yeah. essentially what it comes down to. Right, and good for Sociologists them. or I, woke people notwithstanding. Yeah, I'm hearing good sounds out of the world athletics guys now on this issue. And mm. this obviously is not just the DSD, it's the trans issue. And I think it's about time that someone stood up and, okay, they're not the first. I think we spoke in our last podcast, FINA announced a policy, and I think that's emboldened them. And I fully expect in the next four or five months, once this current season is concluded, I fully expect them to change that DSD policy and their trans policy. I mean, maybe I'm when you say change the DST policy, what to include all events? Include all events. Yeah. So at the moment, the DST mm. policy applies to everything from two hundred right through four, to four. Sorry, four hundred. Sorry, mm. four hundred right through to the mile and the four hundred meter hurdles. Um, and that's why Casta Semenya is not able to do those events because her testosterone levels are too high for her to compete. Right. And we saw other athletes at these world championships running in the two hundred who would have preferred, I think, to run the four. Mm. In fact, there were two finalists in the 200 who before were 400-meter runners. And we know they were moved down because that was where they mm. were cleared to compete. Mm. Uh, there was another one from Namibia who didn't make these world champs. And one of them finishing fourth in the 200 One of them came fourth mm. and nearly medaled. One of them did medal in Tokyo mm-hmm. from Namibia. So this is the problem. Is like you, you have this policy that covers only some events. Mm. And so almost instantly you'll have these athletes appearing in the events either side of that restricted band. Mm. Why the band, really briefly? I mean, I know we talked about it before, but let's just... So, So brief history lesson. In 2016, they had a policy for DSDs that covered all the events, from 100 to marathon, from shot put to pole vault. That policy was challenged by an Indian sprinter called Duty Chand on a few grounds, but one of them was that no one had shown that there was a performance advantage as a result of having these conditions. And so they went off to court at Switzerland, and Cass heard this, and they, they kind of hedged their bets in their final decision. They said, yes, we think that there is a basis for having this policy, but you haven't yet provided concrete evidence for needing it. And so what we're going to do is we're going to give you a couple of years, this is World Athletics, to go away and collect that evidence. Now, that is a, 
I don't know, I was going to use the word poison chalice, you know that saying, right? But mm. but to ask World Athletics to go away and get evidence for that, is a, that's a tough ask. I mean, it's mm. a suicide mission. <laughs> <laughs> and so World Athletics tries, and they go away, and they collect testosterone levels from all their female athletes at their next couple of World Championships, 2017 and so on. In fact, this might have been before that, actually, that this, the collection was done, 15 and 17. And they analyze the performance and try and relate it to testosterone. And, of course, they find nothing except in the events where they're already athletes with DSDs. <laughs> so mm. you find an effect of testosterone in the 800 because the winners are athletes with DSDs and have mm. very high testosterone. You don't find it in the marathon. You don't find it in the 100. It was a dreadfully conceived study, mm. which they had to do because the court asked them to. Well, they didn't have to do a bad study. They had to do a study. But they then go back to the court in 2019 and they say, here's our evidence. Now, the problem is they've only found the evidence in a certain band of events, mm. not all of them. And because they'd been mandated to, or, or because they'd been told you can keep your policy if you have the evidence, they could only keep it for some events. Right. And as, as a consequence, it created this bizarre paradox where their, their theoretical rationale for why you have to have a DSD policy was really good. Mm. testosterone, performance advantages, male physiology, here's the data to show the differences it makes, etc. Perf, unbelievably good argument. But we're only going to apply this to the 400, the 800, and the 15. Yeah. It's inconsistent with its own argument because mm. testosterone makes as much difference to a marathon runner as it does to a 100-meter sprinter, men versus women. Mm. So you predict that they're going to make it a blanket potentially? That's what I think mm. they'll do. I think yeah. they'll. I think they're certainly making those noises, co, isn't he? Yeah, and I think they'll pull in behind Fina and they'll say, like, on these grounds, we're going to actually have a policy that excludes any and all male advantage from women's sport, and then cover Transorf and DSDs with one policy because that's what Fina has basically done, and I think that will be that, that will be their approach. Well, there we go. That very tragic uh, situation they hold DSD athletes, mm, and I think Castor Semenya, a prime example of that, where mm. nobody wins in that situation at all. And it's just one of those very tragic stories around sport. I mean, only, first in South Africa, it has, mm. we felt it quite strongly with Castor Semenya. Yeah, only because of the way it's been implemented. Um, yeah. And, you know, you get these revelations where suddenly everyone discovers that, hey, actually, this person who's been running in women's events is male. Mm. And so they need to figure out how to handle those cases better. That's That's been the biggest letdown is how they handle them. And then there's, of course, the ethical. Ironically enough, if you have a policy that says no individual with male development and male physiological advantage can compete in women's sport, irrespective of lowering testosterone or not, you actually take away one of the big ethical problems because prescribing drugs to someone in order for them to compete when they don't want the drug is the unethical act. Makes sense, right? Yeah. And so in actual fact, if they if they go the way that FINA did, they actually get rid of an ethical concern. It makes it more ethical in one respect. But obviously very tragic for an athlete like Kester Semenya when they're not be able to compete in any events in track and yeah. field. But yeah. again, it's that's the choice, right? Yeah. We've spoken yeah. before about you make a choice. You you're either choosing inclusion or fairness yeah. for and I yeah, you, you got to argue that f female athletes deserve fairness. Yeah, makes me sad though. So, I, to, I can't deny that. It's makes yeah, it's me sad for one. people like Kester Semenya for sure. Mm. Hold up, what was that? 
boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Right, so let's move on to our second subject of the day, and that is the 2022 Tour de France. And uh, for those of you who are cycling fans, you would have enjoyed watching Jonas Vingegaard uh, taking out and beating uh, Tadej Pogacar over a very interesting three weeks. Probably one of the best Tour de France's I've seen in many years. One of the most interesting. And uh, of course, the question that always comes up in this situation, and it came up for me as well, when you see some of the performances of the athletes, and I'm not talking specifically about Jonas, Jonas Vingegaard or Tadej Pogacar, but there was something inside me as a cycling fan and I hate being cynical when it comes to cycling because I love the sport I love watching it I love the drama and the excitement the tactics all that goes with it and I can't wait for two o'clock in the afternoon in South Africa where I can switch on my telly and, and, and watch it while I'm doing some work and I miss it when it's over but there was something about I think it was the Wout van Aert situation where he not only climbed on the day before the time trial and basically dropped Tadej Pogacar on his will. And there might have been many reasons for that. Then on the time trial, of course, we know he was right up there with the sprints. He had the yellow jersey. And it just give, it always leaves him with this incredibly uncomfortable feeling that it was almost three weeks of racing he seemed impervious to. There was no sign of fatigue. <laughs> he seemed to get stronger as the week went on. And I'm not pointing fingers. I'm not suggesting that he's taking drugs. I'm just saying this is the problem with cycling is when you see these performances that are so outrageously better than the people next to them because there are these are the top riders in the world. And White Van Aert seemed to be at another level to anybody else. And then you look at Thibaut Pino in 2019, talking about two different speeds within mm. the peloton. Look at the history of cycling. Ross, do we throw our caskets on the floor and never watch cycling again? Or do we just accept that this is going to be a continuous debate around cycling? Yeah, there's some cognitive dissonance required if you want to. <laughs> if you want to do, how did you describe it? Turn it on at 2, a, 2 p.m. and just immerse yourself in the yeah. entertainment. You can't have those thoughts. I was surprised, actually. We were having beers on the Friday after our normal ride, and you said that you were skeptical, and these doubts crossed your mind. I was going to say, like, that's my role, isn't it? Yes. Because I'm normally I, that guy. And I mean, yeah. I am, I'm still am. I'm just glad you're with me on this one. <laughs> I struggled with this, this one purely because of some of the performances. Absolutely. Well, I mean, there were a few others. I mean, obviously, Fanart. Mm. Like, you got the guy. I mean, the guy was going on attacks every day almost. Yeah. Off the front. And then still, after all the energy expenditure in a high mountain stage, doing that last pull of, I don't know what it was, a couple of kilometers to mm. drop, clearly the second best guy. And sorry, not, okay, he was clearly the second best guy, but second best, clearly better than third, right? Mm. I mean, by the time Fanart dropped Pogacar, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth were like halfway down the mountain still. Yeah. And that, there were, that was one of a few cases. The day before, you had, a, you had uh, nobody being able to sit on the wheel of a guy who basically pulled him up two mountain passes, mm. McNulty. I mean, it's also the same thing. The week before that, the I was seeing... The McNulty thing, and, and sorry to interrupt you, but the McNulty thing makes sense to me because we know from our contacts with the new AE that the numbers that McNulty pushes out are very similar to Bagatra. He might not have that extra 1% to make him a Tour de France champion, but he has the numbers that support his ability to climb. So there's some but, but for defense But the numbers that. that support the ability but to climb But Fanart's a big guy to be such an unbelievable But I guarantee you'll have the numbers. 
Yeah, how I mean, they're made, that's the eat. question. See, that's the problem. That's the thing. It's how it's made. Like, they, you'll have the numbers. I, I, I used to, like a decade ago, even more, 15 years back, thought maybe the numbers will reveal something, but they don't, actually. The numbers are just the consequence. We're trying to understand how, how it was made, you know, and that's mm. the problem. We don't know. And I mean, also, even earlier in the tour and all the way to the end, it was just one attack after the next, uh, the third best guy just dropping off by minutes at a time. I mean, it's just, mm. it's the same thing. And like, this is not, this is not this a new conversation. Every Tour de France ends with this. I know. This kind of debate. <laughs> the guy, the guys who win it are always suspicious by virtue of history <laughs> yeah. and patterns and just pattern recognition. But this year, again, you see the same characteristics that made us doubt the Sky era and the... Um, the Froome era. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, because uh, what are you looking at? You're looking at dominance by a team. You're looking at in, like almost unbelievable consistency of excellence mm. when we know that... I mean, for instance, Pidcock wins on Alpe d'Huez. The next day is one of the first guys dropped. That yeah. feels to me like this is normal. Yes. But when you always, that's that's not normal. It doesn't mean it's dodgy, but it's not normal. When you're always winning. Always at the top. Yes. Always able to like <laughs> reach maximum level from one day to the next. I it's know. just, it's very yeah. difficult to set aside what we know has happened in the past in the context of, and there's a few things for me. One is that the characters are not different. The same people who doped on our managing teams. Of course. And coaching riders. And so if the incentive system hasn't changed and the risk of being caught by anti-doping hasn't changed enough, why would those particular leopards change their spots? So that's what that's one thing that gives me pause. Mm. You know, and I mean I, obviously it's going to be some of the same people. I'm not saying they should not allow a doper back in ever again. And obviously there are some new people also. I don't think they should allow a doper back into the sport at all. I I absolutely difficult. think that that's true. Yeah. If you've been caught doping, you should not be allowed into this professional sport at all. But anyway, that's my view depends you know? on depends i suppose you need on to like make those, those whether you're rules. rehabilitated but i suppose you're mm. right i mean would you allow a, f- a fraudster to work in a bank no yeah exactly but um, anyway i mean for just as a a, a a fact here this year's tour de france was the fastest in history mm. 41.84 kilometers an hour is the average speed and you can say well it depends on the course and depends on the tactics but if you look at yeah. the history of the sport yeah. Right through the heavy, you know, Lance Armstrong eras, when they when they were talking about fifty kilometer averages uh, um, at at stages, this was the fastest. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Which I, which you know, that's that's a, a sign that there is that the peloton isn't getting slower. No, and when we talk about patterns, we talk about let's go back in history and say, right, when in the past did the tour slow down and speed up? And it slowed down, for example, when EPO tests were developed. Yes. It slowed down when the biological passport was introduced. For a couple of years, that was a slow Tour de France, those, those couple of tours. The climbing times were down. The average speed of the whole race was lower. Mm. So, okay. So, anti-doping has the potential to slow it down. Therefore, the corollary or the reverse is that when it speeds up, it must be that's – the, that's the rationale, the argument yes. it's used. And it's difficult to tell someone not to think like that. It makes sense. It's logical, coherent almost to say we know that there were a couple times in the past that the speeds of the race went up. One was in the early to mid-1990s because EPO arrived in the sport and suddenly guys were getting the benefit of extra oxygen. <laughs> the mm. other one was in the early 2000s into the mid-2000s where – 
We know that Lance Armstrong and Postal and Ulrich and Operation Puerto and all this sort of stuff was coming along. So if, if, if in the past speeds have gone up because of doping and down because of anti-doping, then how do we interpret an increase in speed now? Well, it's well, difficult to ignore the fact that in the past it's meant one thing, now we're meant to pretend it's not. But okay, we're not doing that. But some people say, oh, well, we'll find you 10 other reasons why it's gotten faster, but not doping. We can be confident it's not doping. How? Well, I mean, it sounds like I'm arguing against myself here a little bit. No, that's that's good. I mean, there, we there are there are some um, things to consider. Obviously, right. technology is sure. part of them. We talk a lot about the kind of technology in cycling, particularly around aero. So everything mm-hmm. is aero, from the bike frames to the yeah. socks they wear to the helmets that they've got. So that will obviously play a factor. Mm-hmm. How much that is, maybe you could answer that. Tires, for instance, have changed. You know, we talk about you know tires in the old days were twenty three C tires. Now the average peloton size tire is a twenty five, and on the rough stages like the cobbles, they're running twenty eight C tires, and those tires apparently roll faster mm. than normal tires. There's also the, a discussion around the fact that, that, that this year's Tour de France, there was a lot more attacking, there was a lot more aggressive racing than there has been in the past. Um, so all of those factors add up to something. Hmm. Um, I would imagine, but is it possible to quantify what that something should I, be? I don't know, and I mean, I, I, I've I've read the same rationale, and you could all, you could come up with that if you wanted to pick a side on this. You could run it as a court case and say, Your Honour, I'd like enough to present evidence in favour of the prosecution, <laughs> and then you'd have the defence arguments, and you could run it like that. And I hope people do that. I think at least it's intellectually honest to do. I don't know what the specific benefit of all those error things is it's not zero so of course no. look disc brakes for instance i would imagine improved descending speeds because you could get away with riding a speed for just 10 meters further than you had before mm. and if you added that up on 600 corners in a race maybe it's enough mm. <laughs> so so there are technological advances that will improve speed there's no doubt that that would be the case yeah and unfortunately i suppose in a way actually to link this to our athletics talk earlier we're in the same situation for cycling as in running, where you've got tech from the shoes or the, or the bikes almost confounding how we interpret human performance because it would be really nice to have a lack of these confounders with which to mm. now say, actually, you know what? Humans haven't evolved. How are they going that much faster? Mm. <laughs> but they it could, be, it could be in part tech. I suppose there's also an argument to be made where if the top 10 races in the tour got better physiologically or doping-wise, the race wouldn't get faster, right? Right. It, the race only gets faster when when cyclists 50 to 150 get faster. Mm. And so what I would be looking at if I was asked to analyze the tour is don't give me the overall average speed. Let, let me see what the average speed is in the first 10 minutes of every stage. Let me see what the average speed is on the descents between 6 and 8% gradient, between 4 yeah, and 6% gradient. Yeah, yeah. And like get it as granular as possible. Because then imagine all of the increase in speed is coming from downhills. Yes, good point. Okay, now we've got an aerodynamic theory for, for improved performance. And a braking theory. And the braking theory mm. potentially. You know? So the more, the more granular we could make our analysis, the more likely we would be to, to filter or weight these different potential contributors. Mm. But I guess the, the point is some people I saw on, some people from the media saying the vast majority of the tour is clean, I'm convinced of it, and while we should ask the questions, I don't think it's doping. Well, I'm not mm. sure you can be confident to say that. Mm. But similarly, I don't think you can be confident enough to say 
this is definitely only doping and all the other stuff doesn't matter. Yeah. The truth is that we have to be... And you know, you know what? Cycling's got a problem. And actually, I could ask you questions now because I'm the scientist. You're the media. Cycling's, cycling's got itself into a situation now where the people who know aren't telling and the people who want to know can't. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we, we want to know, but we're outsiders. Yes. So we can talk about this in hypotheticals, but I don't know what they're doing if they're doing anything. Well, Thibaut Pino says that he has a view, and Thibaut, of course, is somebody that struggled with back problems for many years mm. and actually went through a couple of years when he didn't ride particularly well, struggled this year. Actually did pretty well this year, too. had a few attacks, but never quite of came, nothing came of them in the end. But he, he said in an article last year that um, the use of cortisone, which he said was a huge benefit to him once he put a couple of quarters mm. injections in his back, and the use of ketones, which has obviously been vaunted by the Yumba um, Visma team last year. I saw that. Fifteen. Um, that's a, uh, yeah, we so, get to that. Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, the, the cortisone thing. Obviously, you can't use cortisone in the Tour de France, but if they are microdosing it or using it in small amounts mm. to just make themselves their bodies a little bit more resilient. Mm. Um, he believes Tiopino, who's vehemently anti any kind of doping from what he talks about on social media, he's saying that those things they have a massive effect and, mm. and they if athletes are using them and cyclists are using them, they they're gonna get a benefit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, going to my head, I don't know that much is happening at the tour. Mm. Maybe small doses under the radar just to maintain. I think it's still probably happening away from the tour at the training camps and in preparation. If it's happening at the tour, then it's probably undetectable stuff. I would imagine. I don't, but again, I don't know. It's the ability to recover that remo- is yes. remarkable. So, remarkable. So people have said, like, you know, it's nutrition advances and recovery modalities. We've done on this podcast a, an episode where we discussed most recovery is BS. <laughs> <laughs> Food and a good night's sleep is pretty much 99% of recovery. And you can have all the ice baths and infrared pajamas and massages <laughs> and shock therapies and compression pants that massage you at the same time, whatever. That stuff does not make a massive difference, but but nutrition and, and sleep maybe does. Mm. So then the question is, are they sleeping and eating much better now than five, ten years ago? Maybe some would Possibly, say yes yeah. to nutrition. I don't know about that necessarily. I don't think it's moved that much. But, mm-hmm. but sorry, the point I was trying to make earlier, very clumsily, it came out all wrong, is that cycling now has been split into those who are part of the the, the entertainment industrial complex mm. and those who are part of the skeptical complex. And the problem is like, so Paul Kimmage, for instance, on social media is, is just, <laughs> I don't know if you've seen what he's been tweeting. Every no. time every time a journalist that posts some glowing, gushing comment about how unbelievable the cycling has been, he just posts mm. a big F off. <laughs> he retweets them. <laughs> he retweets them with an F off, right? And that's what he's doing. Well, give us some. Who Paul Kamench again? He's, he's, the, he's a Irish former cyclist. Wrote the tour, and then he wrote. Um, he wrote the book Bad Blood. Yes, there we go. Right about his own experiences with doping. Confessed to being a doper. Was one of the guys who was on in pursuit of Armstrong, and he's right. He that's is. Right. You know, when you said you sit uncomfortably, Paul Kimmage isn't uncomfortable about what he thinks. He knows exactly what he thinks. But he also came from an era when it was rampant. Good. Yes. So he yeah. might not know as much as he does now. But I guess, that, so the point I'm trying to make is that if Paul Kimmage went to the tour, he'd have no access. No one would want this guy there. He's, he's persona non grata. Mm. Anyone who asks these questions is pretty much going to be kicked out of the sport. He's broken the emerta. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and, and now that he's going after people, he's not going to have, he, he's, sacrificed his influence 
and his ability to discover the truth because of his opinion. Mm. On the other side, you've got the people who are, I think, responsible for producing the entertainment product, the GCN, basically. Mm. And I watched most of it on GCN because the commentary was mostly better with one or two exceptions. <laughs> and then you watch the Insight show afterwards, and some of it's very good. Yeah. But it's quite clear that they do not want to go back towards the questions that surrounded Armstrong and Sky and Landis and Hamilton and Ulrich and Bilaki and Pantani and you you know the list goes on. Yeah. So Dan Lloyd, who's with GCN, posted a tweet saying, you know, the vast majority are clean and while we should always ask the doping questions, I think we can trust what we see. I'm paraphrasing, but words to that effect. Mm. There's a pile on, <laughs> as you can imagine. And then others defended him. But then two days later, one of them says, I'm in love with Tadej Pogacar. Okay, that's fine. Like you can be that if you're a media person. By all means, fall in love with the cyclists. <laughs> but then don't position yourself as a potential or even a objective even a, even voice. Even having a pretense yeah. of having an objective voice on this. You have to choose. You're either going to be part of the entertainment industrial complex or you're going to be part of the cynical, in, the journalist with a bit of integrity. Right. But if you're a journalist with integrity, you are not getting into cycling. They have shut the product down. Mm. That's the problem, I think. It's whether you drink the Kool-Aid to some extent. Exactly. Which I think exactly. is exactly what you're saying. So, yeah. so yeah. you know, what happened with Armstrong was Walsh and Ballester were standing at the top of a mountain and they saw this Texan climbing away from the best climbers in the world. They looked at one another and they said, no way. And they went digging. Mm. And they found the TUE and they pursued, they found Emma O'Reilly, they got all the, te- it was investigative work, mm. but it was based on, I don't believe my eyes, I'm going to look into this. Then similarly, people did the same thing around Sky because the transformations were just ridiculous. Mm. You could argue to change sports, some people did that around Mo Farah, no one believed what they saw. Now people are having the same reaction, but no one's going digging. Well, maybe they are. Well, who, who? Somebody's might be. Yeah, maybe. Because maybe every journalist I'm... wants to uncover that story, don't they? I don't I, know. I still think so. I mean, if you think of the David maybe. Epstein's, who's a friend of the pod, mm. you know, he's a kind of independent journalist who would probably go in there with an investigative note and yeah, possibly, look at you know, it, you know Poss- maybe not possibly. him. But... Yeah, maybe I'm doing a disservice to your media fraternity <laughs> here. I always think there's a journalist who will look for the story, and if you uncover proof of any kind of mis- mis- you know the, misdoings it's a good story you know what the dilemma is and you're the journalist so like you can answer this as a question is is how do you go digging for the story when you're an outsider mm. you need access but they're not going to give access to the person who wants to dig the story they're going to give access again another example is tom pidcock's obvi- they've obviously got relationships so tom pidcock gives these this crew that does the breakaway a word to slip in you know you know how we've done actually when i'm on commentating on television and you yes. say say this word during the broadcast <laughs> they do that and it's pitcock's giving them he's sending them a message saying you got to get this word in collie wobbles or something and then uh, mm-hmm. like they, so in other words the point i'm making is that the media is bantering with the cyclists well it depends how you They're define mates. you see the, the reason why i'm challenging a little bit on this is that there are certain different types of media you, you talked about the media of the fans and we see that all around the world, there are media who are just involved in the sport because they're the fans. And I mm. remember speaking to, uh, 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 I won't even say what federation is, but a local federation here in South Africa who said his job is really easier as the media person because he can literally churn out press releases and that press release will appear in the newspaper the next day because the media just don't question anything. And is that media or PR? It's PR. Yeah. And media don't question because they worry about access. 
Correct, as you correctly right, say. Right. Yeah. But I do think there are investigative journalists who are not that close to the sport who will go into it from the outside and and, get, and will do the job of mm. investigating. Mm. And I think there are the, the athletes and the media that are close to the sport, like the Dan Lloyds of this world and other journalists who work on the tour and cycling events, mm. become friends and fans and yeah, become yeah, part yeah. of the, the wheel. Yeah. But I do think there are independent journalists yeah, and, who take up that mantle. And to be clear, like I, I think the I think the entertainment product that is produced by the media is very good. Oh, of course. The coverage of the Tour de France, GCN coverage, is, is really good. Yeah. Okay, there's a few annoying commentators and my condolences to those of you having all the time. <laughs> you know who I'm talking about. But they are re- that's really not great. But the, overall, it's cool. And I don't mind that they're mates and so on with the guys. But they don't. the problem is I think they're, they're trying to do both jobs. And you, you just can't. You can't, mm. you can't have bants and investigate the same people you're bantering with, right? No. So the, I guess the, I guess the question it's I'm a bit wondering, like triggered commentators. <laughs> yes, the question I'm wondering is, is who's who's are Slovenian and Dutch and Belgian and Danish journalists going to go digging? Well, the ones the integrity you see the potential of a story, I think will, and I do think those journalists exist. Because if they go digging and they can't find anything, and they genuinely dig and dig and dig and dig, and they can't find anything, then cool, almost. Yeah. Almost like we've proven that there's nothing to find, right? But if no one goes digging, then that's that's what worries me now at this point. The key thing in journalism is to find a whistleblower that trusts a journalist enough to yeah. tell the story. Yeah. And I think that's what's key in this situation. If there is anything that's happening with any of these teams or or riders, yeah. it just takes one person to say, I trust a journalist to take the story and do do it justice and that will and then that will happen potentially. Mm. Well Daniel Daniel Benson is with uh, Cycling News, mm. I think. I forget, I think Cycling News. He wrote a piece earlier this year just talking about how there hadn't been a failed test in cycling in about 18 months. Mm. And that should actually make us really worried because the likelihood that that's a legitimate finding that no false, no athletes are doping is highly unlikely and more likely is you're just not catching the ones who are. Yeah. And in that article, it, 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 came, it really struck me that the UCI seemed to have learned from the past and are maybe a little bit reluctant to invite scrutiny upon themselves at the very moment in the sport where scrutiny and investigation are probably the only way to uncover what's ha- if mm. anything is happening. I was mm. going to say what's happening, but rather let me be circumspect and say if anything is happening, it's going to be uncovered by investigation and not anti-doping tests. Mm. And so anyway, I... I do hate this conversation because I don't know, because <laughs> I don't know, you know, when I'm talking about like DSDs or testosterone or false starts or something, at least we know something. Mm. We didn't, we don't know. I know. But then they asked, they, did you see they asked for an art at the press conference after the time trial? And he says, what kind of question is that? That's a shit question, not answering it. That doesn't help. No. Surely what everyone. Does he, what does he say though? I don't know. You tell me. What, what would you want him to, if you asked that question as a journalist, what would you be looking for? Well, you're looking for some explanation as to how good he is and to say, well, we don't clean. But I suppose all the athletes that have been caught in the past and those that haven't, and those that have said the same thing. So no matter what he says, he's in a no-win situation. We're sitting here looking at his performances going, that makes me uncomfortable. Um, You know, he could be the world's best cyclist, which is what Vingegaard suggested that he was. Um, And he's a phenomenon. Um, mm. But you know, is he is he that good? Yeah. Anyway, 
<laughs> I suppose we'll have to uh, park it and yeah, let us know what you think about it because it's certainly something that we are vexed over here at the Science of Sport podcast. Just uh, very quickly, we're running out of time a bit on the podcast today, but uh, a couple of things. Today, Pogaccia, um, of course, the big favourite going into it until he lost half of his team for various reasons. But the big stage for him is when he lost um, the, the, the yellow jersey on the on stage 11 at the Col de Granon when Vingard attacked him. But it was after a day of attacks from the Yumbo Visma team Mm. when Roglic went and there was a whole and he was chasing and then of course um, to prevent all the attacks Pogaccio himself went on the attack himself it, it was just a, it was a crazy stage very entertaining to watch but it seems to me a prime example of his body just gave yeah. up in the end wasn't it that that stage was I spoke earlier about the entertainment industrial complex that stage was yes. probably the most entertaining cycling I've seen whether uh, like and again I can't set aside and say wow this is just awesome and I'm sure it's it's legit because it did. anyway let's not go back there they threw one attack after another at him and there was one, at one point there was a photograph and if you saw it where he was basically surrounded by these jumbo guys and it looked like a swarm of bees descending on a <laughs> And it was one one against four or five, and they were throwing Roglic off, and then throwing Vinegar off, and then Roglic went again, and Vinegar went again, and they were just it was just like haymakers, one after the next. And it's a it's a really interesting demonstration of cycling physiology because when when you when you watch a normal stage and they go up a hill, what they're trying to do is they're trying to set as hard a tempo as possible without breaking themselves. So they're trying to find a ceiling at which they can ride, that they can sustain, and that discourages any attacks from behind. Because if there's an attack, it means you've got to go through that ceiling and you then pay the physiological cost, mm-hmm. right? And we can understand these concepts in terms of critical power and W prime, right? So critical power is your- explain that. Yeah, yeah, we'll try. <laughs> critical power would be your sort of quasi steady state p- performance level. So the power that you could sustain for 45 minutes to an hour. Mm-hmm. Now, for these guys, that's in the range of 6 to 6.3, 6.4 watts a kilogram. For you or I, 4 watts a kilo would be a handy effort. <laughs> for most normal, yeah. 3 watts a kilo. I'm lucky. And then W W prime, the best way to think about that is to think of it as if it was a battery or a reservoir, like a reserve capacity. And w what does it pri- stand for, W prime? Is it, what is, what's the W? Power. It's work. Okay, work. Right. It's, it's not power. It's actually work. Okay. Um, work. And so W prime is measured in kilojoules or joules. Mm. So, for instance, twenty five thousand joules would be the size of a, of a cyclist battery, for instance. Mm-hmm. So here's the principle. Let's say you've got a guy with a critical power of four hundred watts. So in other words, this is a guy who could ride for forty five minutes at four hundred watts, and whilst not comfortable, it's manageable. Okay. If he rides at four hundred and one watts. He's using his battery. Right. If he's at 399, he's not. Okay. So at 450, he's 50 watts above his W prime. Make sense? Right. That's 50 joules per second that he's depleting his battery. So if his battery was 25,000 joules, he would have 500 seconds to go before he would fail. Does this make, does that make sense? Yes. So whatever so, you, so you can see the body as a battery. Because there is a definable limit yeah, yeah. to performance. And so it's almost like your anaerobic threshold capacity or volume that you can tolerate. That's what W prime is. Mm. It's how much you can go beyond your critical power before the battery. When you multiply it by time, that gives you the, the, the duration of before you fatigue. And so fatigue is actually quite predictable if you know your critical power and your W prime. So again, 
if you're riding at 400 watts and then you attack at 450 or you lift it to 450, that athlete would have eight minutes and 20 seconds before his battery would be depleted. So you'd predict fatigue in around eight to eight and a half minutes. And it's, <laughs> it's pretty good, actually. I play with it often. It's fairly reliable. <laughs> if, if he attacked at 600 watts, so now he's going 200 joules per second above critical power, Therefore, he's using his battery up at 200 joules every second. If his battery was 25,000 joules large, 25,000 divided by 200 would give you the size of the, 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 the duration to fatigue. Does that make sense? Yes. So it would be about okay. two minutes in that right. instance. Right. So when we are above critical power, we deplete the battery. When we're below critical power, we replenish the battery, but not at the same rate as it's depleted. So when Pogacar was being attacked by Roglic and Vinegar, every attack is taking him above critical power because those attacks were, were vicious. <laughs> so that's 850 watts for five seconds, and then we're going to settle in at 600 watts for 20 seconds and then settle back down. Mm. So it's fast, slow, fast, slow. It's every, multiple interval sessions, sessions for him. Every one of those little sprints is way above critical power, and it's depleting that battery. And it's one, and then the next, and then the next. And in between them, when they're trying to recover, his battery's being replaced, but not fast enough. Mm. And then eventually, remember, he goes to the front, and he, he pulls them up the Galibier on the front at quite a steady tempo. He's probably riding close to critical power in that, in that pull. And that's probably the big mistake, because it prevents the battery from being depleted, uh, from being replenished at the rate that it should have. Right. Because ideally, you'd want to go as slowly as possible and let yourself recover. Because now what they do is they then drop down to the Galibier and they do the last climb up to Granon, and he just did not have it in him to respond to that next attack. So that's one theory. The other one, which so I So essentially, I mean, for me, the psychological effect of what he was trying to do when he went to the front after all those attacks, there was a, I, when I looked at that, I thought, okay, what he's trying to do is making sure that he's showing to the Visma team that he's strong. Mm. Therefore, I'm going I'm to attack even though you've been attacking me all day. But if he hadn't done that, potentially he would have had something left for that climb because he was depleting that those sores. Well, he was delaying his replenishment right. less than he was depleting. Because yeah. remember, you only deplete it once you go above critical power. Mm. By whatever you are above critical power is the rate at which you deplete it. And by whatever you're below critical power is the rate at which you replenish it. So you'd really want to... And that's why the day after when Pogaccio attacked Vinegar, Vinegar was smart. He followed the attack because he was obliged to. He went past Pogacar and then he slowed it down so much that Seb Kuss and Thomas and all the other guys from the back were catching up to them, remember? But he's replenishing And he's just recovering right. and, and, and waiting because he knows the next attack is imminent as well. So let me keep that battery as full as I can. So that's the one theory. And in that regard, it's that it's that pull that he made at the last sort of four or five cab, the Galibia, that probably cost him the ability to follow. Although, again, to lose three minutes to that attack is significant. So mm. maybe there was more to it. And the mm. more to it might be, and this is the other, I think, physiological theory, is when you are, when your exercise intensity goes up, your carbohydrate requirement goes up. We've discussed that. That's the main driver of which fuel you need is, is intensity. Mm. And the intensity on the Galibia would have been so high and so variable because of these bursts of huge power for 20, 30 seconds, then recover, then burst, then recover, then burst. It's not inconceivable that in the chaos of attack, plus the disruption to the team, plus the physiological cost of riding those attacks and following those wheels, Pogacar just underfueled on that day. That's not impossible. Yeah. And in fact, that's what he later said in the tour, as he probably didn't fuel up for them. Because I know 
we, everyone knows this. If you're going to go out for an easy two-hour ride, you can get away with no fuel at all. Mm. But if you're going to go and do an <laughs> interval session in the morning, for instance, you have to eat before or at least drink or eat on the bike. Otherwise, you will blow because of the intensity of the exercise. And I think, I think the variable intensity of that day might have, in, in fact, pushed him into a state of low... Not because he, he clearly didn't have super low blood sugar. Then he would have mm. lost a lot of time. Not enough. But he was struggling enough that guys like Gaudu and Adam Yates were riding him off their wheel, and that's not normal for a guy at the level that he was at. And he didn't really. Course. I mean, he was pretty much alone when they were attacking him. He didn't have mm. any teammates left. And in, in the article on on bicycling dot com, which was written Alan Lim, he was a domestique. He says. Is the guy giving up a bottle, a bar, or a gel going back to the car? You can't underestimate the impact of not having a good domestique has on your fueling ability. And I think we underestimate that in cycling. Those domestiques, in other words, those riders that go mm. back to collect bottles and fuel from the tr- from the car, bring it to their lead rider. And they're critical to the mm. success of those lead riders, so they don't have to do that themselves. Yeah. And they can still be racing at the front, whereas right. to a large extent he was – it shows you the strength of a team and how important it is, not just for pacing, but mm. for support as well. Yeah, and tactically. So then tactically what Jumbo have done is that they've mm. – They've created a logistic problem for Pogacar's fuel strategy. You know, remember we we discussed on the podcast after winning Flanders, someone got a photograph of Mathieu Finnepool's stem and he put his fuel strategy on it. Remember yes. we discussed that. I remember that. Yeah. And so they they go into these stages with a plan, and the plan says I'm going to have a gel at this point, a bottle at this point, caffeine at this point, and so forth. Now you get the chaos of the race and the sort of the fog of war. Basically, there's that saying, where you're being attacked one after the other. Uh, the race is now disrupted and fragmented. The team cars can't occupy those spaces. It's possible that you mess up your fuel strategy because you can't stick to the plan. So there's that practically. And then also physiologically, the carb demand when you are being attacked like that will be higher than if you got to ride steady tempo. And mm-hmm. I don't know that they made the adjustment on the fly for that. So I think those two things, the that critical power W prime model combined with the fueling is probably why he lost three minutes because he, again, the guy was so superior to everyone in this race except Vinegar that to see him lose time on that stage to the likes of Quintana and Tom, I think Quintana gained time on him then. Yeah, I think Quintana did, yeah. had gone up ahead, right? Mm, yeah. Uh, chasing Bargill down. Uh, Yates, Gaudin, so on. That, that was worse than even mm. a bad day would explain for Pogaccio. I, I mean, in saying all of that, the drama and I particularly like, and despite everything we've talked about in this podcast today, I do like the spirit in which Pogaccia seems to take on racing the Tour de France. He views every day as a race day. Is almost a part of him when you see the interviews that he does where he is prepared to lose but prepared to risk and therefore to lose. Mm. And um, he's got a young heart. He's not playing a cagey game. He's yeah, out there to yeah, race. I, mean, and I, I agree. I agree. You know, I, yeah, I like yeah. that. Yeah. You know, and he seemed even on the on, on the finish um, at the on the Champs Elysees afterwards, he seemed satisfied with his performance. He and he knew he'd raced a good race. Yeah, and he's, he's young enough, having won two tours already, that he doesn't really need to worry. He doesn't have to prove himself anymore, and he'll go for it again in the same manner next year, I imagine. Yeah, there's something like raw and um, almost like I don't want to use the word as a slur, but unprofessional. Yes, yeah, like the the sport has been the sport has been He's constrained. A it's been constrained so much by professionalism. Hmm. You know, if I go back, my my real interest in it started with the sort of 
latter part of Indurain. And then you had the Armstrong years, which was really structured. And there was a, there was a plan. And it was almost mm. like you were watching a race one against a template. Mm. And that template's out the window a little bit with him. So that is refreshing. And as I say, like, for entertainment value, it is. It was just, it was spectacular. That I mean, even yesterday, Pogaccio attacked on the Champs-Élysées. Yeah. <laughs> Along like, with Garant Thomas. There's a kind of a playfulness to it, eh? That's, yes, absolutely. Uh, that it, is, it is actually nice, and it sort of won me over a little bit um, as it, as it mm. developed in the tour. Mm. Um, so, so, yeah, I, I can certainly see that. And, and I'm, sure that, I'm sure that with maturity, hopefully, and, and, and hopefully maturity doesn't suffocate that impression impetuous yes. um, playfulness yes. whatever the word Absolutely. is for it but that he'll also learn like that you don't you don't have to win every battle mm. you know he he, he he should have let Roglic go it was very surprising that he chased Roglic as hard as he did on those attacks you know so like the sensible thing would have been let this guy go we've got two minutes we'll just ride 5.6 watts a kilo up the Galibier mm. We'll hold him at 45 seconds, and then he'll have to work so hard on his own, we'll get him on the next climb. Done. But then it wouldn't be the race we yeah. saw, right? And Pogacar is not so, the kind of guy that's going to do that, really. Yeah. He's so, going to enjoy the race, which is what be, he said a couple of times. It was a race. It would be interesting mm-hmm. to know if his team directors are saying to him, please don't do that. <laughs> please just please <laughs> yes. just sit in the bus. Please don't. Please don't attack on the second last climb six times in the space of about two kilometers. Yeah. Because he did that on the... Um, the Hatzekam stage, right? That, right? that was the before we even got the Hatzekam. Yeah. That was as close as it looked like he would get to getting away. It was mm. was this those last two or three attacks on on the mm. what was it called? This uh, the one before the Hatzekam. Yeah, yeah, I can't remember this what the Stand climb was, but... or something like that. Mm. But, but yeah, um, and 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 everyone else, everyone else, like you listen to the move with Braniel and Armstrong and Hincap, and they're going like, dude, wait till the last climb because that's what they always did. Yes. And boring it's just, man, just boring. different now, you know. So well, I anyway. like the way he rides, and it it's lovely a, to it. It was entertaining, absolutely. Yeah, it really was. I mean, when he, you know, when he won that stage on the gravel, it was the second day he'd won, wasn't it? He'd won mm. the day before, he jumped away, and then he'd won that one. He'd already gotten a lead on the cobbles. I thought the race was done. I mean, yeah. I, I even messaged a mate and saying, "Well, at least the next two weeks will be sort of free. You don't have to watch this because it's going to be a procession." Yeah, <laughs> how wrong that was. Yeah, and even when Vingegaard actually took the yellow, there was a lot of people saying, "Well, he's only going to have it for a couple of days because Pogaccio will recover and win." Geez, the he was so, so strong. Yeah. Like, Absolutely, he did not show a moment. Love to weakness. see his body fat percentage, Vingegaard. Even even when like for a little guy, fifty nine kilos or something, even when he got dropped on the descent when he had his little wobble, he caught up so fast. Mm. I don't know. Did what, on the time trial? No. Oh, no, yeah, yeah. Okay, on the before the That's right, yes, yes. Because, like, Pogaccio, he lost a fair chunk of seconds yes. there. 100 metres. Yeah. He, he closed it down and so And Pogaccio attacked him. I don't think... <laughs> and then he waited for Pogaccio. I don't think we saw Vinegar at max for more than about 10 minutes of this Tour de France. Yeah, I agree with you on that. He That's did how good he was. Maybe, maybe, maybe 20, maybe 4K on the one climb and 6K on the other cl- climb he was at the limit but the rest of the time I don't think he was fully mm. digging into what he has I, it's scary to think how good he could be yeah well for those of you who enjoyed watching the Tour de France we enjoyed it too despite some of our misgivings about the riders out there I've got a small prediction though and I know Ross Tucker disagrees with me horribly on this but I think Chris Froome might be a top 10 at the Vuelta I'm just going to put out put it out there I might be horribly wrong on which stage no <laughs> <laughs> I think he's I think he's 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 back. He's back to some extent. 
And I, I don't know. I was very impressed with this performance at the Tour de France, and I, I think his third place on the uh, on the on, was it uh, on Alpe d'Huez was pretty impressive. He's he's definitely got the legs for it, and it seems to be that he's got something in the tank. But maybe I'm horribly wrong because I like, I'm a bit of a Chris Chris Froome fan now, having watched his YouTube channel on many many occasions, and I quite enjoy his delivery, and uh, I enjoyed the way he finished third and on a very gutsy Alpe d'Huez stage behind our own Louis Wankies, who was. One of our South Africans who finished eighth overall, which was also a great performance from him. Well, the Vuelta ends on the 11th of September, so we'll do a recap and we'll, we'll, do revisit, a recap. we'll revisit yeah. this ill-fated prediction. Yes, well, if there's, yeah, let us know if you agree or disagree with me or you either agree with Ross. Anyway, that's all we have time for today. Thank you very much for all of you that have participated in the discussion on our Twitter feed. Uh, Science, a sports side pod, of course, we are on Twitter. Ross is on Twitter, so am I. You can also become a patron on our Patreon support page, patreon.com, and look for Science of Sports. You can donate a small amount of money to support us and get to be one of our patrons that can ask us questions on our pod. Um, But for the moment, it's goodbye. Follow the Science of Sport podcast at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.